Peter has said in very clear terms to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. We're His witnesses. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. And I I say that so that we can understand when we get into verse 33 as we read it, why uh, we see what we see. So in Acts 5 verse 33, let's read together and aloud. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you and bless you for your holy word. We ask, Lord, that you will now instruct us, grant us your wisdom, pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord, that we may understand and know, Lord, not only these words of this passage uh, in its academic sense, but, Lord, may it be something that will stir and awaken our hearts in the very practical expression in our lives. We ask, Lord God, for the moving of your spirit, that we would continually stay open, Lord, our minds, our eyes, our ears to everything that you would speak to our hearts with today. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. Well, the evident power of God was nothing short of amazing in the early church as the Holy Spirit was being poured out on the believers. Remarkable things were happening. Confirmed healings were taking place in great numbers. People were being delivered from demonic oppression, and souls were being saved daily, transferring from the kingdom of darkness into the glorious light of Jesus Christ and His heavenly kingdom. But jealousy and envy reigned in the hearts of the high priest 
and his faction of the Sadducees toward and against the unlearned and the uneducated followers of Jesus Christ, or as they thought they were. But when the apostles were arrested by their own authority, the authority of these religious leaders, an angel came in the middle of the night to release them and commanded them to go back to the temple to keep preaching in the name of Jesus. Now when they were arrested once again and and brought in for more questioning, Peter responded by preaching Jesus to the council. If you'll just go back to verse 29 for just a moment and read from there. But Peter, it says, and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Now, as a point of review, Peter said, and we are witnesses to these things. Now think about that for a moment. Peter says, we are witnesses to these things, but our witness alone, our witness alone would never amount to much, would it? We don't have any power in and of ourselves, but the power comes through the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who repent and believe the gospel. So when people repent and believe the message of the gospel, then the Holy Spirit comes to seal them as God's beloved children, and He indwells them, giving them power to witness. So you notice how that connection is made here when Peter says, we are witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Now this is so important to understand before looking at verse 33. Before we can actually continue on and look at the next verse, uh, the first verse of, of the text that we're looking at today. Knowing what was said to make the council furious enough and eager to execute the apostles. That's what we have to understand. That's what we have to come to understand here. Knowing what was said to make this council uh, enraged, as it were, enough and eager to execute the apostles. Because to not obey God is to grieve Him. To disobey God is to grieve Him. Here is the reason why so many Christians are powerless today. They allow so many things in their lives, whether secretly or otherwise, to grieve the Spirit of God. Vanity and pride and selfishness, carelessness, worldliness, unkind thoughts and feelings. Not to mention covetousness, the love of money, and so many other things grieve the Spirit of God and hinder the testimony for Christ. When you think of this one passage of Psalm 139 for just a moment, the last two verses of that psalm, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Try me and and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, David is saying here, search me, God, and know my heart. Not, not to say, God, if you'll just search me, you'll know who I am. 
God already knew him. God already knew the very depths of David's heart. That testing is for us. That testing is for us to see where we are with the Lord and where we are in our life. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, prove me, and know my thoughts, my deepest anxieties, my worries, my fears. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Have we prayed this prayer? Have we then waited for the Lord to search us and have we dared to open our hearts to Him honestly? And have we put these things then, as as the Lord reveals them to us, have we put them out of our hearts? For whatever it's worth, walking in obedience is power. Walking in obedience, walking in obedience of Christ is power. Did these learned and educated men pray for God to search their hearts? And I'm speaking of the high priest and the Sadducees and the rest of the Sanhedrin. Did these learned and educated men pray for God to search their hearts before they began to make the rash decisions that they were making? They were just told by Peter, and here's the connection. They were just told by Peter in so many words that they were powerless because they were disobedient and hence they grieved the Spirit of God. They had not repented. They had not believed. And so we see the effects of that. Look at verse 33 now. You see how important it is what Peter said to them? Because now in verse 33 it says, When they heard this, they were furious. Some translations may say they were enraged. I like what the King James says. They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and plotted to kill them. Literally, they were cut to the heart. The knife had gone deep. And they were sawn asunder. They were, that, that very term is also can be translated here. Sawn asunder. The same words that are used in describing what happened to some of the apostles, and I should say some of the prophets in particular, Isaiah, who was, who was sawn in two because he was a prophet of God. And done, that done by his own people. And it's saying that when they heard these things, when, when Peter was saying, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given to those who obey him. Peter's words didn't feel too good on their ego, did it? It is at this point in the Spirit's convicting work that a person either repents or he reacts. He says, one or two responses here. You either repent when the convicting work of the Holy Spirit goes to your heart, or you react. And what's the reaction here? Their immediate reaction was to get rid of the apostles. And not just a couple of them, all of them. They were plotting to kill them all. Now, there was a time when Peter had preached after Pentecost of Jesus Christ, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection. And the men said to him, men and brethren, what must we do? Because it says they were pricked to the heart. This is a different word, by the way. This is a very different thing. They were pricked to the heart. There was conviction. 
of the Holy Spirit, and they were responding to the Holy Spirit. And of course, Peter tells them, you must repent and believe. But you see, what we find here in this particular verse, verse 33, this was not divine conviction. It was outright hatred. It was outright hatred. These who feared the multitudes, remember that they they, they kind of always treated the apostles at first with kid gloves because they saw the multitudes and the multitudes had respect and showed favor toward the apostles. So they didn't arrest them, uh, uh, you know, with with great force or whatever. They would take them in, but they, they watched themselves. They walked on eggshells, as it were. I think I've given you all the cliches. But now they were so infuriated with what was being said to them. Their pride was was slapped around quite a bit. And these who feared that multitude and that crowd no longer cared. Murder was the viable option here. But let me ask you this. If the UPS or FedEx driver I have to be fair here, and I probably have to mention all of the delivery people. But if the UPS or FedEx, just to make it short, if the UPS or FedEx driver delivered a package you didn't want to receive, would you shoot him? Think about that for a moment. You know, sometimes we don't like to hear the truth. So we shoot the messenger. Sometimes we don't like to hear the truth. And we will do everything we can to keep from hearing the truth. Many times we end up hurting those who are trying to tell us the truth. But consider what it says in Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, who comes and says with love and honesty, this is what God is saying to you. Are we willing to to learn lessons? Are we still, that doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian or how long we've been in the Lord, are we still willing to learn lessons even, even from those who may not be friends? And what I mean by that is, of course, that There may be times that we struggle with the things that we are being told by those above us, like bosses or managers or foremans or whatever. Sometimes, even as Christians, we'll we'll say, you know, well, you know, I'm a servant of the Lord, but if if the person, by the way, you know, the Lord has has told us through, through His Word that we are to obey our masters and all, as a good witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So are we willing to learn lessons even from those who may not be our friends? We're told in Proverbs chapter 9, verses 8 and 10, or 8 through 10, Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Now, which would you rather be? Scoffer or wise man? Because a wise man, even when a wise man makes a mistake, can be corrected. Because he becomes only more wise by receiving that uh, correction. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. And he will be still wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. And this is followed by this statement. The the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. 
And you would think that the high priest, that the religious leaders of, of the children of Israel, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the, those who compose the, 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 the council, would have sought the Lord and said, Search me, O God. Search us, O God. We want to know what's right here. You would think that they would receive what is being given to them because they have searched out and said, are these people truly of God? Are they saying what the Word of God is saying to us? We know that, he, that Peter was very clearly saying that to them. The problem is they weren't willing to listen. They weren't willing to grow. They weren't willing to be taught. The nation was now on the very edge of the cliff but was being given another opportunity, though the opportunity wouldn't last long. You go down two chapters more, down to chapter 7, and see what they do to a person named Stephen. These untrainable Sanhedrin council would put themselves at the top of the pedestal. And by the way, the, the, the council consisted not only of Sadducees, we've been stressing the Sadducees in the last couple of weeks, but, but it wasn't, uh, the, the Sanhedrin Council wasn't uh, just uh, only Sadducees, uh, but it also had their religious rivals, the Pharisees as well. These untrained Sanhedrin Council would, would now hear another voice. They would hear what many call a voice of moderation. And in verse 34, we go on and it says that one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, I'm going to pronounce his name about five different ways. I don't know which one's right. We said Gamaliel earlier. I think we should just do it in Spanish, Gamaliel, because that's, that's easy. You know? It just stays that way all the time. I'm going to pronounce it Gamaliel. <laughs> a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew, many away, uh, or many, uh, drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed, scattered. You'll notice that he doesn't say they came to nothing because, you see, uh, we'll, we'll see in a moment that uh, Judas uh, raised up people that became zealots and zealots were still around during the time of, of Jesus. And so it says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now, it needs to be noted that to have sufficient votes for execution within the council of the Sanhedrin, because this was their desire, to find some fault in these men to murder them, which, which means that if they charged them with anything, it would be illegal because they had to come up with some charge. So to have sufficient votes for execution, the high priest needed the support of the Pharisees on the council. Remember, the high priest was connected with the Sadducees. But unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees actually believed in the miraculous. And they also believed in, the resurre in a resurrection. 
They believed in resurrection, while the Sadducees did not. But the Pharisees were divided into school, uh, two schools of, of theological thought. There was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. There were two different schools. And I don't bring this up to show you what the differences are. That take too long. But uh, there was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And it was the school of Hillel whose views would actually prevail in the end. But the Pharisee named Gamaliel was, in fact, the grandson of the esteemed Hillel. Now, history records for us that Gamaliel was given the title of Rabban, R-A-B-B-A-N, Rabban. Now, most of us are familiar with the word rabbi. And if you look into the more orthodox uh, part of the Jewish faith, they call their teachers rebbies. Same, kind of same thought. Uh, but uh, here Gamaliel in, in history is, is called Rabban. And there, there's a reason, because Rabban means our teacher. So one person highly esteemed over many. Rabban, which was a level above Rab, which is teacher, or Rabbi, which means my teacher. In fact... In one of the writings, uh, Jewish writings called the Mishnah, it is said of Gamaliel, they almost call him something else, it is said of Gamaliel, since Rabban, Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no more reverence for the law. And purity and abstinence died out at the same time. So you see how connected he was to the law and how strong he was in keeping the whole law. Now remember the Sadducees, on the other hand, only looked into the five first books of, of the Hebrew Scriptures, which was Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, but they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in them miraculously. They, they considered themselves just people of the Torah or really whatever they wanted to believe of the Torah because they weren't much believers. They were very liberal in their particular thinking. But the Pharisees believed in the whole law and they trusted in the whole law. So... Gamaliel was one who was considered highly esteemed in, in, in the knowledge of the law and the teaching of the law and so on and so forth. And once he died, they said uh, a lot of that reverence for the law died out. So as the head of the Hillel school, Gamaliel had a number of disciples of his own, not the least being someone named Saul of Tarsus. Now we should all know that Saul of Tarsus would later be named Paul, the Apostle. And Paul, when he finally arrives in, in, in Jerusalem, there toward the end of the book of Acts, as we shall see one of these days or years, in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, as he finally finds himself in Jerusalem and he's amongst a, a crowd, he says to them as part of what he was saying, I am indeed a Jew, he says, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet, notice, of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. And so he makes it clear that he was a student of Gamaliel. Well, this same man, Gamaliel, took the floor to lead the Sanhedrin to saner council by first ordering the officers to take the apostles out of the room so they could talk among themselves, and then showing that he was not carried away with the clamor of execution. He wasn't being carried away by all the shouts and all the stuff that was being said about getting rid of these apostles. 
Now, I want you to remember that he was uh, as much a rejecter of Jesus Christ as the rest of them. But he wasn't about to commit a rash act in the heat of passion. And these are some of the things that we could kind of commend him for. Notice that he says to them in verse 35, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. Take heed, be careful, beware of what your intentions are. You know, it was a dangerous course that the Sanhedrin was pursuing. What would be the next miracle? See, think about these questions that Gamaliel may have in his own mind. Miracles have been taking place. Be careful because what's, what, what is the next miracle going to be? And then ask yourself the question, could the reaction of the multiple, multitude be predicted? You guys have been walking on eggshells all around this multitude because of these apostles. You take them by force now. Can you predict what's going to happen? What about this question? What would the, what would the, would the Romans themselves consent? You know, because they couldn't have actually do anything without the Romans' consent. The Romans had to acquiesce to what they wanted to, to do. Would the Romans consent? And then if they do, could disaster only follow? See, these are wise questions that you would think that Gamaliel would, would, would probably, be, probably be prompting them with because of the course that they wanted to take. So what does Gamaliel go on to say? Well, in verse 36, he says, For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. Every time I read this, I think of some person in, in contemporary history here, that uh, leader of a large group of people, and he's always telling them that you ought to be somebody. You know, I am somebody, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I always think about that when I read this, you know, because Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. Thought himself of high stature. A number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census. By the way, this is not the census that was being taken uh, during the time of Jesus' birth and, and, uh, and early, early life. This, this particular census that, uh, that uh, Gamaliel is referring to is, is one that came about ten years after the birth of Jesus and, and had to do with, with the raising of, of more taxes by the Romans to uh, fund a, 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 another province and uh, the setting up of that province. Anyway, uh, it says that uh, this man Judas uh, of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. So here was one who was very influential and drawing people to himself, to his insurrection. For, uh, as we'll learn in just a moment what that was about. But it tells us that he also perished. And all who obeyed him were dispersed. And again, you'll notice that, and I, I made this before, that Theudas' group came to nothing. But here he doesn't actually say that. He says all who obeyed him were dispersed. They were scattered. But we'll see why they didn't come to nothing. We don't know much about Theudas, Theudas, except for what Gamaliel said of him. That he came on the scene claiming to possess a deep spirituality. He claimed to be the Messiah who would lead Israel over Roman power and domination. That truly did come to nothing. We don't know much because we don't see a lot of, of, of the history of, of this particular Theudas. Gamaliel is comparing Theudas with Jesus, though, and this is very important. 
Gamaliel is comparing Theudas with Jesus. When, Je- when Theudas was killed, his group eventually broke up. So now that Jesus was dead, the same will probably happen to his group as well. You see his thinking. But more is known about Judas of Galilee who led a revolt against Rome in 6 AD. Josephus, the historian, describes this revolt in his Antiquities of the Jews. And his followers would become known as the Zealots. Now, they were Zealots in the time of Jesus. That's why I say they were dispersed, but they didn't come to nothing. They continued to carry on this particular cry, this rallying cry of Judas of Galilee, that because God was Israel's king, it was high treason to pay tribute to Caesar. So there were little terrorist groups, little insurrectionist groups going about, calling themselves zealots. As a matter of fact, there were a couple of guys in the twelve that were with Jesus that were considered zealots. Called zealots. But Judas was killed and his followers were scattered. So again, you see how he's, he's tying Jesus in with Theudas and with this Judas of Galilee. They're killed. And their followers are scattered. And in verse 38 he says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. Now this is wise. Please listen. If it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now most people would say that all of this was good advice. That all of it was good advice. In verse 38, Gamaliel considers the probability. Now now, now understand. He considers the probability that if this is just a work of men, it won't amount to anything. But in verse 39, he considers the possibility that if it be of God, whatever is done cannot be overthrown. So in verse 38, he considers the the probability that if this is just a work of men, it's not going to happen. Nothing's going to happen after that. But then he considers the possibility in verse 39 that if it is of God, whatever is going to be done, you cannot overthrow. Yes, all of this is good advice. Very good advice as far as it went. But did it go far enough? This is the question. Did the advice, did the counsel, did the wisdom of Gamaliel go far enough? Let's take for a moment uh, a look at the other side of the coin. Let's, let's take that, 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 that uh, uh, Hebrew, that Jewish uh, uh, perspective. Uh, this is what we see. But on the other hand, let's look at something else. It is held by some commentators that Gamaliel's counsel was actually unwise and dangerous. Even though God used it to save the apostles from death. That we know. His approach, they say, was wrong. By classifying Jesus with two insurrectionists, he was rejecting the evidence. By classifying Jesus with Theudas and with Judah, or Judas, those two insurrectionists, he was, in fact, rejecting the evidence, the clear evidence. And what would that be? Well, did Theudas or Judas do the things that Jesus did? And then you can turn that question around. Did Jesus do what Theudas and and Judas did? 
Well, Theudas and, and, and uh, Judas did not go about touching people and healing them, cleansing lepers, raising people from the dead, preaching with great wisdom and authority as he did on the Sermon on the Mount, as he did in the Sermon on the Mount. These guys didn't do what Jesus did. And Jesus didn't do what they did. He didn't go in and, 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 and try to rally you know, some kind of, of terrorist movements because those particular zealots or those insurrectionists actually killed people. Jesus didn't do that. So there's no connection here. And then the, the major question is, were Theudas and, and, and Judas raised from the dead? See, up to this point still, nobody has come up with any evidence that Jesus was not raised from the dead. All the evidence pointed to the fact that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. He was raised from the dead. No one stole him. There was a guard. They just didn't want to believe it. So to Gamaliel, Jesus was just another zealous Jew trying to free Israel from Rome. That is his mindset. He compares Jesus with these two men. Furthermore, the Rabban, Gamaliel assumed that history repeats itself. Now, a lot of us would just say on that thought alone, well, doesn't history repeat itself? Yes, in many ways it does. But the assumption here is based upon history repeating itself in light of the person of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is this. I want you to consider the formula. Theudas and Judas rebelled. They were subdued and executed. Their followers were scattered. That's the formula. Give these Galilean fishermen enough time and they would also disband and you'll never hear about Jesus again. That's what they, you know, if you follow that thought, history will repeat itself. If Jesus was just another insurrectionist, then things will just, you know, he's, he's dead now, and his, his, his followers will scatter. And you'll never hear about this Jesus again. He'll, he'll join the ranks of Theudas and Judas and others in history. Well, it has to be said that God broke the mold when Jesus came on the scene. God broke the mold of history when Jesus Christ came upon the scene. You see, Jesus' birth, His life, His death, and His resurrection had never happened before, and folks, it will never happen again. It happened once for all. It came and it broke the, the, the patterns of history. It came and broke the patterns of, of the way we oftentimes see things. And it is true that if we only live under the sun without any desire or for knowledge of God, that history will repeat itself. That men will not learn from the mistakes of the past. We're seeing that even today in history. But when it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ, He broke that mold. He set a new course. God interrupted history and He visited the earth. He entered the earth. In Jesus Christ. And this has changed all of the world. It has changed all 
of the nations. It has changed, and, and, and consider then what kind of wars we've had. They're religious wars. It's changed history. In Hebrews 9, verse 12, it tells us, not with the blood of bulls, I'm sorry, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, speaking of Jesus Christ, with His own blood, He entered the most holy place. How many times? How many times? Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jump down in, verse, uh, in chapter 9 to verse 26, and there it says, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, how many times? Once. At the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered how many times? Once. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Once. This will never happen again. Someone was, I forget where we were. Short-term memory here. Senior moment. Uh, we were talking about uh, some, some false prophet or some false Christ named De Jesus. You all know who I'm talking about. It's been, yeah. And, and supposedly, um, you know, he's, uh, uh, he's got many, many followers. And, and they're willing. They're willing to keep, you know, bankrolling his lifestyle and, and all of this kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and whatnot and so forth. And, and supposedly, you know, he's divorcing a wife, but uh, he's supposed to pay $27,000 worth of alimony. And the people are, are glad to give it to him so he can do that. Just, it just astounds me what people will follow today. You know, who's more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? You know, that kind of thing. You know, just think but just how sad that is. But will this guy die for them? You see, only, there's only one Jesus. <laughs> and he died for us once for all. And, and, you know, when we sang, it is well with my soul, I, I tell you, you know, it's so gripping to think, you know, that our sin, my sin, your sin was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. So, you know, once for all, the Lord broke the mold in history of Jesus. One further mistaken idea of Gamaliel's was that if something was not of God... It must fail. If something was not of God, it must fail. Now, what this doesn't take into consideration is the sinful nature of man in the presence of the devil in the world, which we realize. How many movements today are, in fact, successful? Now, there will come a time when they will fall. But you see, his, his, his logic and his simplistic logic here was that, well, if it's not of God, it's going to fail. Yeah, eventually. And these fail quickly. But he's trying to apply that to what was happening with Jesus and his apostles. And by the way, the enemy, uh, while God's truth will ultimately be victorious, still is quite strong and still influences multitudes. So, you see, the logic here doesn't fit. Lastly, consider Gamaliel's motive. He was encouraging neutrality when the council was facing a life and death decision. He was encouraging neutrality. What did he say? He said, you know, keep away from these men and let them alone. If this plan or this work is of men, we'll come to nothing. 
There's some sense of neutrality being, being encouraged here. Don't get involved. If anything, let Rome take care of it. Let them be the ones to clean up the mess. But you see, you can't be neutral when it comes to life and death decisions. You cannot be neutral when it comes to life and death decisions. Folks, a wait and a see, a wait and see attitude is not neutrality. Waiting and seeing is not neutrality. It is definitely a decision. What, what, what Gamaliel is saying is, no, but maybe someday. No, but maybe someday. That was his message. If a person says, I don't want to get involved, you just got involved. Because the question is, will you believe in Jesus Christ or not? And to take some kind of a neutral stance on that says you, you're saying, in effect, no. You either say yes to Jesus or whatever, no matter whatever else, whatever other stand you may take or whatever other position you may take, will say no. You either believe Jesus or you don't. So did Gamaliel lose an opportunity then for salvation, not only for himself, but for his council and even for the children of Israel because he turned the meeting that he had with his people into a trivial discussion about zealots? And said to them, hey, you know, let them alone. If it's a plan of men, it's going to fail. Please consider this issue of of neutrality here because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 verse 30, very clearly Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. He who is not with me is against me. You take a neutral position, you just stated your your position is against him. Because you're either with him or you're not. And I, and I think that the church has, has found itself today in a position where people kind of have that wishy-washy gray area today. And I have to say that this, this movement called the Emergent Church, which some of you have heard about, I've talked about it a little bit in times past, but, but it's, it's, it's wanting to just broaden this gray area about things. Well, maybe, you know, we could probably believe a little bit more of other things and not so much about what the Bible says. And maybe if we just tell stories of this and that we can encourage people. Folks, the Bible is one thing that we have to stand upon as the truth. And it is Jesus Christ upon whom we ought to stand on fully and committedly, totally, because of who He is. And you cannot make one decision, one direction or another and say, well, you know, I tell you what, a person is better off in saying, I don't want to follow Christ, than one who says, well, I don't know, and still follows after the person who doesn't want to follow Christ. He who is not with me is against me, Jesus said. And these religious leaders of the Jews in that time would have understood the questioning given by Elijah to all those people who are following idols in 1 Kings 18, verse 21. You know, out there on Mount Carmel where we were going to see that big battle of the ages. Who is really God here? The God of, 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 of Israel or, or the God of Baals or the gods of Baal, as it were? And listen to verse 21, And Elijah came to all the people and he said, How long, he's speaking to his own people, How long will you falter between two positions? How long will you falter between two positions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. 
But if Baal follow him, but the people answered him not a word. That's the saddest part about it. But the people answered him not a word. And you know, when you don't answer a word, you've just answered. When you don't answer a word, you've just answered. Wanting to be neutral is as much a decision to, to reject God's offer of salvation in Christ as saying no. It is significant that the first group that is mentioned in, in Revelation 21 verse 8 are those afraid to take a stand. Some, some translation may call them the fearful. But I want you to notice what it says in Revelation 21.8. It says, but the cowardly. But the cowardly. The first group mentioned. But the cowardly, unbelieving, un- abominable, uh, abominable, sorry. Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The first group mentioned, the cowardly. At the same time, what Gamaliel said in verse 39 was the same and sober reminder of the possibility that the new movement was indeed of God. How else could they account for the miracles? Remember, he's a Pharisee. He believes in miracles. How could they account for the miracles? How could they account for the miracles of Jesus? How could they account for the resurrection of Jesus? Because, folks, there was nothing that said that he didn't rise from the dead. How could they account for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How could they account for the miracles performed by the apostles in just days past for them? If this is of God, you're not going to overthrow it lest you be fighting against God Himself. Why are people still fighting against God when the truth has been clearly made known? Why? Let's look at the reaction of the Sanhedrin in verse 40. And they agreed with Him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, that tells me one thing. They agreed that they needed to take a saner approach, but they still had the same hatred, didn't they? They hadn't gotten softer on the apostles. They hadn't said, you know, maybe we ought to consider what they had to say. No. It says they agreed with Gamaliel. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Third time now that they've told them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So they departed, the apostles did. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Don't speak in the name of Jesus any any longer. First thing they do is they go speak in the name of Jesus. You know why? Because Peter already said it. We ought to obey God rather than men. We've made our point. We've made our case before them. They want to continue to throw this threat at us. We're still going to preach Jesus. 
we're still going to stand. See the contrast? The contrast is of of these twelve taking a stand, uh, grounding themselves in the mercy, love, and grace and truth of Jesus Christ and doing what Jesus Christ said. They said, we are his witnesses, and so also is the Holy Spirit who is given to those who obey him. And the Lord says, preach in the name of Jesus, we're going to obey him. So what were they given? Power in the Holy Spirit to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And also power to take the beatings, to take the punishment, to take the, you know, the, the, this, this, uh, this lashing out upon them. As, a, as, a, as something to say that, you know, it humbles them to say, we're worthy of bearing shame for Christ. Hmm. You know, I had mentioned previously that Gamaliel's advice had not gone far enough. Why did he not say, let's investigate. Let's investigate for ourselves I mean, we're religious leaders. we got a high priest here. We're supposed to know the law. We're supposed to have the law. Why don't we investigate and see? And if we find that these men have a message from God, let's accept it with all of our hearts because isn't God the one that we're supposed to be serving anyway? Did Gamaliel's advice and counsel go far enough? Instead, we know where their hearts were. They were cut to the quick, they were cut to the heart, they were enraged, they were furious against the followers of Jesus. And while they agreed not to murder them, they did what they were allowed by the law of Moses to do. Deuteronomy 25. They wanted to beat them with a thrashing, and they did. It tells us there in Deuteronomy, and we've seen it in other places, but it tells us there that if they were to punish someone, they were to do so... 40 lashes minus 1. So 39 lashes. This was accompanied by a useless warning. And again, a useless warning to cease from further mentioning the name of Jesus. You can't tell the disciples, the apostles of Jesus, don't mention the name of Jesus anymore. You see, that's what, what really gets me about... People today who, who want to entertain in churches rather than to teach the Word of God and to teach the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. Why should I be? Why should we be? It is the name given to us by which we're saved. So, well, we don't wanna, you know, we don't want to offend. Folks, you're offending more by not saying the name of Jesus. You're getting people to think that Jesus isn't important, that his name isn't isn't powerful, that it isn't important, that it doesn't mean anything. It means everything to us, the name of Jesus Christ. So why? Why do people hide the name of Jesus? So what was the the apostles' response then to this illegal treatment? Because that's really what it was. Well, their response was they rejoiced. They had listened to the Lord Jesus and his teaching on the, on the mount when, when he gave that great sermon on the mount, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, he says, and be exceedingly glad. That's all they were doing. They were obeying Jesus. They were rejoicing and being exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
That's why they were able to, to rejoice in what was taking place. That they, they, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Because they knew what the eternal benefits would be. And even the Apostle Paul, who at one time persecuted the church himself, had learned that lesson later on when in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sakes. Or suffer for His sake. You see, the, the, the Apostles' hearts were full of Christ. The Apostles' hearts were full of Jesus Christ. And they could not do anything otherwise. They couldn't do anything but, but speak the name of Jesus and preach the name of Jesus and rejoice in the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus. Out of the abundance of their, heart, of their heart, their mouths spoke the name above all names because they were full of Jesus Christ. And we as Christians today, we need to be full of Jesus Christ. So that whatever we speak to people when it comes to, to their, 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 their need for, for, uh, for a Savior, when it comes to their realization that they are without a Savior in this life and they need the Christ who has come for them and come to die for their sins and come to shed His blood for their forgiveness of their sins, that they know who Jesus Christ is. We who are full of Jesus Christ ought to give forth the name of Jesus Christ. And then to do so in three ways. Every day, every place, and every truth. Every day, every place, and every truth. That's what we see in verse 42. And daily in the temple, every day, and in every house, every place, they did not cease teaching and preaching every truth of Jesus as the Christ. Every day, every place, every truth. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, See then that you walk circumspectly or carefully, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Every day. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Later on he would tell them, Wherever God has called you, there is where you minister. What he's saying? Every place. And then if you go back to Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Every truth, you see. Every truth. I want to encourage those of you who may be fighting against the truth of the Lord Jesus today. Quit fighting what you know to be true. Quit fighting what you know to be true. And turn to the Lord Jesus right now. And yield to Him wholeheartedly. Yield to Him with all of your heart. Yield to Him. Surrender to Him. All of your heart. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't be, you know, thinking that a neutral position is better than no position. Because there's only one position for those who know the truth. That is, we stand upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and we stand upon the person and work of Jesus Christ and we stand upon the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we have nothing to fear because Jesus Christ is Prince and Savior. He is Lord. He is Sovereign. He is Redeemer. He is Savior. And He's coming again. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. How many of us lean on our own understandings? Just like the Sanhedrin were leaning on their own understanding. But he says, in all, uh, Solomon says, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. 
We acknowledge the Lord. We acknowledge His name. We acknowledge His truth. We acknowledge His, His work in our lives. We acknowledge His purpose for us. And God will direct our paths. Every day, every place, and every truth. Let's pray.